director of sorry <laughs> and also director of um, Northwestern's Latin American and Caribbean Studies program. Um, you may be familiar with some of Paul's work, but I'll run down some of the highlights if that's all right. Um, in, in 2011, Paul published Cuauhtémoc's Bones, Forging National Identity in Modern Mexico. Uh, in 2014, he co-edited Dicta Blanda, which has been a hugely influential book um, in modern Mexican studies. Um, we're all in lots of ways working within the shadow of the Dicta Blanda, both literally and metaphorically. It's also co-edited Journalism, Satire and Censorship in Mexico. Again, that was co-edited with Ben Smith and also with Michael Wittieri in 2018. Uh, and then what we're probably going to talk about a bit more today um, is the, the new book, Unrevolutionary Mexico, The Birth of a Strange Dictatorship. Paul is a very talented translator and editor, and he's also published lots of influential articles on power, violence, memory and identity and I think actually going back over some of your work this afternoon Paul um, I was quite struck by the way that the interplay of power and identity is there in an awful lot of what you've done um, so far in your academic career and I expect both of those things will loom pretty large today um, but without further ado I'll hand over to you now I'll I'll come back in with some concluding comments after you've finished speaking and then we'll open up Q&A um, to the attendees in the audience today. Right well Bill Nestor thank you very much for the invitation it's a real pleasure um, to speak at least virtually back in London and um, that was a, a magnificent and flattering uh, invitation and I would actually like to start off um, with a line from um, Unrevolutionary Mexico, one which speaking of memory, I can actually remember, um, which is the first one, which was the uh, classic Como Mexico no hay dos. And I argued in Unrevolutionary Mexico that, yeah, Como Mexico no hay dos. Um, but today I'd like to reverse course on that and argue that in one central aspect, uh, Como Mexico hay de hecho un chorro de países. And these are the numerous hybrid regimes in the last 30 years of history endpoints of the so-called third wave of democratization. And these are regimes that look like democracies, they talk like democracies, but they don't live up to various fundamentals of a democracy, starting with the opposition actually winning once in a while. Now, the overwhelming majority of contemporary political regimes hold some elections. They stake some claim to democracy or at least popular representation, even the latter day um, oriental despots. And these are often local elections, as recently in Saudi Arabia, which are popular among authoritarians because they matter to locals and not many other people. And so since the 1980s, China has actually conducted first-past-the-post village elections for village leaders, internal party contests, which have several candidates, up to a couple of thousand voters, and a secret ballot, and can give representative results. And even North Korea has regular elections. It is, after all, the DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, with three token parties competing for seats in a token parliament, and one man competing for executive. And as the BBC put it last time around, the result's really not much of a nail-biter. But straight-talking dictatorships, sultanistic, authoritarian, or totalitarian, 
are far outweighed by the number of systems in elections serve at least some functional purpose. Places where some non-official candidates have some chance of winning subnational power. And a ruling party can then point to such results as evidence of liberal democratic probity. And this is often a precondition for Western loans or arms sales or football club takeovers, although not if you're Saudi Arabia, um, while never ever losing national power. And many such regimes emerged rapidly in the 1990s as post-Cold War euphoria gave way to a slightly weary confusion. And as early as 2000, that influential scholar of authoritarianism, Juan Linz, was observing quite wistfully that it has become more and more difficult to know what democracy is not. And so the labels among the politologos proliferated. There were hybrid regimes, which is the most useful sort of um, umbrella term was the title of this, not the main theme. That's Larry Diamond. There is electoral authoritarian regimes, which is Andreas Schedler and competitive authoritarian regimes and the term of Steve Levitsky and Luke and Wayne. Now, all of these hybrid regimes meet the basic criteria of what Robert Dahl calls polyarchy, namely contestation and participation, essential to democratic governance, but all fell markedly short in the specifics of a platonic ideal of liberal democracy, namely universal adult suffrage, free and fair elections, an absence of non-elected supreme powers, whether they be generals, mullahs or monarchs, and freedoms of speech, press and association. And in their place came the competitive authoritarian model, which was described by Levitsky and Wayne, and really overused word, but it is a seminal work. And they said that competitive authoritarian states are, I quote, civilian regimes in which formal democratic institutions exist and are widely viewed as the primary means of gaining power, but in which incumbents abuse of the state places them at a significant advantage vis-a-vis -vis their opponents. Such regimes are competitive in that opposition parties use democratic institutions to contest seriously for power, but they're not democratic because the playing field is heavily skewed in favor of incumbents. And competition is thus real, but unfair. So there is, in short, the democratic game afoot, but it is one where the playing field is heavily skewed. Those in power, to continue the metaphor, are forced to sweat. It can even be a game of two halves, but the incumbents end up winning every time. And two con concrete comparative examples of such regimes are Russia and Turkey. Both are presidential systems with le legislatures, both hold regular multi-party elections, one in the final analysis by the incumbents. Both have opposition media outlets that complain about results. And both regimes arrest or otherwise put down the more vocal of those complainers. Vladimir Putin and Recep Erdogan, and behind them the United Russia and the Justice and Development Parties are sophisticated competitive authoritarians. In presidential elections, they never win wholly absurd majorities. Out of the one has never gone that far above 50%, while Putin, in between shooting tigers, flying fighter jets, and riding around semi-naked, um, averages 67%. And that's perhaps the sweet spot of rigged election results for those practitioners out there. You want to crush enough to demonstrate massive popularity, but not enough to devalue the entire process. 
In both countries, there are journalists at home as well as abroad who are reliably critical, even though their numbers are dwindling and their finances are paltry. They lose consumers, not just through oppression, but through production values. And so the glossy state-funded RT is a lot more watchable than distant YouTubers in Lithuanian exile. There are street marches in Ankara and Moscow, though they are not the best public events to show up to. And while winning elections and arguing with opponents, Putin and Erdogan rely on the final, in the final analysis on state violence, not just in the out-and-out war zones like Chechnya and Kurdistan, but in the 160,000 political prisoners in contemporary Turkey, or the political assassinations in Russia or in Salisbury. But neither have the sophistication nor to date the success of longevity of their predecessors in Mexico under the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, the PRI. The PRI's cadre has ruled Mexico continuously from 1929-2000. Through the massive bloodletting and then social reform of the Mexican Revolution, the regime of the mature PRI formed in the 1940s was standard issue in its Tocquevillian search for central power. But it was exceptional for its time and place, a dictatorship that was civilian, collective, and punctiliously electoral. Between 1940 and 1994, there were neither caudillos nor top-level assassinations, unlike in the United States, where the major progressive leaders of the post-war period, MLK, JFK, RFK, Malcolm X, and Harvey Milk, were all murdered. There was, in Mexico, extensive violence conducted by soldiers, policemen, and thugs in the countryside, but it was a violence quite successfully minimized the chattering classes who for years quibbled over how democratic or dictatorial each successive government or election was. Now the Mexican political system was both of the above. It was neither fish nor fowl. It was an enduring mixture of both the democratic and the authoritarian, an idiosyncratic power structure that its subject citizens met with a mixture, often in the same person, of resistance, resigned tolerance and acceptance. In its glory years, the 40s through the 60s, this was a dicta blanda that ran on a complex blend of political monopoly, fostered by election rigging, no reelección, and a broad elite coalition. A qualified level of cultural control, ranging from the nationalism of school programs to the censorship of national newspapers. Strategic payoffs from a mixed economy, which individuals access thanks to benevolence of government gatekeepers and structural, at times considerable violence, whether repressive, riotous, or rebellious. It was a system of bread and circuses and guns. Now, it's been debated whether this concept, the dicta blanda, overprivileges violence, underprivileges violence, or according to one profoundly innovative person, does both at the same time. But that's only appropriate for a regime that was itself a balancing act. And if you accept that actually naming things is a worthwhile exercise, affording comparison and debate over the concrete features of different political entities, then it's probably worth considering which nouns best fit the Mexico of the second half of the 20th century. George Orwell and Octavio Paz, both of whom believed that linguistic imprecision was the downfall of democracy, would have agreed even if Paz disagreed viscerally with the idea that Mexico was a dictablanda. Two more scholarly arguments have been advanced against the idea of Mexico's dictablanda. The first is that the term is just inadmissible, and the second, that it's admissible but misleading. 
So one critique says you can't call Mexico a dictablanda because dictablandas are only military regimes. But this isn't the case. While the definition was first widely applied to General Damaso Berenguer in Spain in the early 30s, a dictablanda um, is not by definition exclusively military. And in fact, Daniel Cosio Villegas applied it to the civilian regime of General Porfirio Diaz, which is a good instance of the time of potential for some thought-provoking comparisons. Another critique of the idea of dictablanda suggests the term is ethically inadmissible because General Pinochet used it to describe himself. But if sociological terms are rejected because they're used by unpleasant historical actors, then democracy, in light of the DPRK or the German Democratic Republic, should also be ditched. And as the proposal that Mexico as a dictablanda is a historically misleading idea, if we register that the term actually does allow for quite a lot of violence, then it's worth considering some alternatives which have captured facets of the state and conceptually prospered. And so the idea that the only meaningful party in Mexico is the PRI should make that country to a certain extent PRIista is self-evident and the idea of the PRIista state is useful. It is also particular though, rather than comparative. And as historians, perhaps more to the point, it overlooks recent scholarship establishing just how much the party could be an adornment rather than a bulwark of the state. At the local level, Ben Smith has found that surprisingly, political backing and party activism weren't particularly terribly important in electing presidentes municipales. These are the politicians that most Mexicans cared most about, and they were, Ben finds, for good or for ill, self-starters. While Joy Langston takes a more traditional top-down view of the party, she also points out that it had no assets of its own. As Jack Wehmack has asked, actually ran the country or vice versa. And neither did the PRI have systematic inputs into policymaking, and neither did it enjoy much continuity in its top personnel who served ephemerally at the president in turn's pleasure. So this wasn't the Kuomintang, this wasn't the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And then finally, Rogelio Hernandez, who's perhaps the best social scientist, he's a sociologist by training um, of the PRI, has shown how the executives who really counted, presidents, governors, did not come up through the party ranks. Governors controlled regional party branches rather than vice versa. And the presidents who sat in the presidential compound of Los Pinos were Pinos, priistas in name only. The other alternative, the perfect dictatorship, Mario Vargas formulation, which sparked Octavio Paz's fury, is evocative. It sounds good, but it's wrong. Mexicans weren't drugged in submission in a brave new world. And they weren't locked into the sort of impenetrable false consciousness of the matrix. And they weren't monitored in submission in airstrip one. Room 101 in Mexico wasn't an individually tailored worst nightmare. It was the off-the-peg brutality of the Tehuacanazo, which is fizzy water shut up nasal passages, or the chili pepper, or the car battery. And finally, and these illusions will work for historians, everyone else, my apologies, um, dairy products, marine animals, charitably inclined bogeymen are all evocative, but also not much use for comparison. And so conceptualizing Mexico from the early 40s to the early 60s of the Dictablanda seems useful to me for its precision and comparison until an equally specific and less flawed term can be proposed. 
Thereafter, after the early 60s, there's a conservative time, there's counterinsurgencies, and the regime becomes a lot less bland and a lot more dictatorial. And at the same time, though, and in paradoxical compensation, Mexico's federal elections become more open to the main opposition. These are the Christian Democrats of the Partido Acción Nacional, the PAN. In congressional elections before the 60s, the PAN's greatest triumph was six seats in Congress, which is a whisker over 1%. Only one opposition member ever made it into the senator, the Senate, sorry, and no opposition candidate ever won a governorship. And yet this was a dynamic equilibrium that required continual accommodation. And in the 60s, the PRI came under pressure on several fronts, including growing extensionism, internal reform demands, the formation of schismatic unions, ex-president Cárdenas' involvement in the Movimiento de Liberación Nacional, the MLN, and finally the PAN, who in 1958 pulled out their role as a loyal opposition by refusing to take up their handful of congressional seats. And so the PRI's elites, national elites following my earlier argument, reacted with a measure of proportional representation, awarding minority parties five seats in Congress for every 0.5% of the vote. And this ended up being the thin end of the wedge. In 1977, the Ley Federal de Organizaciones Políticas y Procesos Electorales, thankfully shortened to LOPE, expanded PR to form 25% of the total number of congressmen, and they also extended the system down to state and municipal elections. And by 1986, PR calculations were used to elect two of the 500 seats in Congress. And by that stage, Prista candidates were also running up more realistic and believable scores in presidential elections. So Mexico was always, up until its death struggles in the late 90s, a competitive authoritarian state, Avonaletba. What does that mean? There are three basic benchmarks for a competitive authoritarian state, and these are elections, civil liberties, and the evenness of the playing field. Elections should include major opposition parties, at least some of the time, and avoid outrageously obvious fraud, so that voting still preserves some meaning. People do turn up voluntarily to vote, even if the elections are widely seen as systematically unfair. Civil liberties should be nominally guaranteed and at least partially respected, even if partisan repression of political arrests, murders, and murderous crackdowns is periodically allowable. And finally, the terms of political trade should be intricately rigged by access to state institutions and money, control of the media, and manipulation of the law. So start with elections. Opposition candidates in all presidential elections, except 1976, and who after all could compete with José López and three of them were actually close, those of 1940, 1952, and 1988. And the incompetence of election riggers in 1940, whose disorganization left them shooting up Mexico City in order to win, was instructive for generations. So when Priistas feared they were losing in 1988, they crashed the computerized vote count system. Uh, whether it's true or not, the story that the Secretario de Gobernación wisecracked Secayo del Sistema is far too good to forget. Now, some presidential elections were evidently non-competitive. The results from the 60s to the 70s were cartoonish, 85%, 90%, 93%. 
But, and this is the key point in competitive authoritarian states, other elections were unpredictable. And there were tens of thousands of elections in Mexico across the period. And these subnational elections were competitive in two places. First, inside the party and primaries. So that sounds a bit like New York or Alabama, right? And later, outside the party, in official candidate struggles with breakaway, often ephemeral factions, the left-wing Partido Popular, and above all, the right-wing PAN. And the revolution had given rise to thousands of provincial political parties, most tiny, and many of them socialist in name, if not in practice. When the revolutionary elites founded the Partido Nacional Revolucionario, in 1929, these were intended to disappear, but they didn't, and lots of them were only fully absorbed by the pre in the mid-40s. When they were, their disappearance didn't mean the disappearance of meaningful elections, though, because the primaries that determined the pre's candidates were ferocious contests between the hugely diverse politicians who came out of those original, different parties. There were peasant radicals, communist workers, right-wing ranchers, crypto-Catholics, labor caciques, and crony capitalists. The primaries which sorted out which of them took power took up three quarters of the entire electoral season, and they regularly drew bigger turnouts than the later constitucionales, which are the contests between the pre and the external parties. And these contests made the 1940s a key transition period when you have a party leadership of authoritarian ambition that coexists with this profoundly eclectic membership and a powerful tradition of popular mobilization. And it ends in February 1950, when the PRI changes quite quietly the party statutes and abolishes primaries. Now, inside the rhetoric of the revolution and subsequent dissent, Mexicans depict elections of all sorts as basic rites of appointment, ceremonies that are predetermined by the influential in Camarillas, clustered around presidents, governors, or regional strongmen. And their cynicism was often right. At the highest level, there's what I've called an informal Senate of ex-presidents who could decisively influence the incumbent president's choice of successor. At a gubernatorial and senatorial level, it was the presidential inner circle that decided most contests in advance. Congressional elections were more of a gray zone. Their outcomes were a barometer of the relative influence of regional and national elites. Finally, mayoral elections were swayed in big towns and cities by federal power brokers and governors, while in small towns and villages, local deputies counted. And you see this widespread popular belief that it's not competition, but appointment in the begging letters we have in archives which the local ambitious sends the prominent. And um, one of the, it can't be classic, it's one of the many which I came across um, from um, long lost relatives to President Aleman is extensively quotable, I'll boil it down. It says, I want as a poor man, you to recommend me to all those who surround you. I was very close to your father and I helped him in what I could and you're my blood. And he always said that if he could, he'd give me a chamba. I'm the eldest brother of the dead, Prospero Gomez Aleman, and I always saw you as family. You don't know me, but I love you, and, and please answer favorably and, and forgive me my spelling. This is one of many. Um, and sometimes they work, other times they don't. But basically, this sort of clientless faith 
in kinship is very well founded. But the apparent simplicity of central control is belied by the intense elites put into actually managing elections. And it's not at all haphazard. The priestas see elections as problems. The problema electoral, a classic piece of free speak, offers this complex series of interests to be reconciled and conflicts to be resolved. And in that process, there are really multiple variables. There are the machinations of rival factions, the leaves of popular mobilization. And behind this problema electoral, there's a centuries long fixation with the municipio libre, whose roots run back to both the Spanish comunidad and the indigenous altepeto. And this is only strengthened by the rhetoric of revolutionary democracy. So government documents are mechanically stamped with the Madrista slogan of suffragio efectivo y no reelección. This is added to by things like the Alaman doctrine handed round luckless primary school students, which reads, quote, the government is and must be considered as essentially democratic. Now this was written off by one US diplomat as eyewash and elections were admittedly completely bypassed sometimes. Some villages write in to Gobernación saying, look, we've never had an election. And even some market towns are ruled for long periods by appointed councils, not elected ones. But this is seen as a breach of the basic moral scheme of local politics. And you get floods of correspondence to Gobernación complaining about it bitterly. And sometimes state authorities react and they sack ayuntamientos which were installed through either flawed or imaginary elections. And so for elites, elections are a necessary evil. And their favorable outcomes are likely, but they're not guaranteed. And so their manipulation is an absolutely vital dark art. Now, the critical questions are how frequently were elections competitive and how frequently did popular mobilization actually influence their outcome? And both are difficult to answer. In the mid 40s, the party triumph in federal elections is seen as so ingrained that when one candidate loses, he blows his brains out on the podium of Congress. In the provinces, the warring factions of earlier state congresses vanish and replaced by the homogeneity of what's called the carro completo. And in contexts like that, it's a fair assumption that it's um, the auscultacion stage where public opinion actually influences results. But local municipal contests are a different matter. And so municipal elections, says one leading priesta, excite the citizens too much and in many places give rise to fights and divisions. And of course, these are only logical if Mexicans go into these elections believing they can influence the outcome. They might somehow win. And when about a fifth of um, municipal elections in the 40s and early 50s are protested, it suggests really that a lot of Mexicans vote for their mayors and their councillors, believing that their elections are competitive. Now, as people actually on the ground, as opposed to historians, um, you'd believe that they were right. And actually, some municipal elections are won by dissidents. Um, there's actually quite extensive um, examples, um, but overt upsets are comparatively rare. What happens far more often when there's popular mobilization 
is a subtle lesser exercise of power. And the distance become those actors whom George Sebelis called veto players. They can't necessarily elect people, but they can stop other people from being elected. And even quantifying how often this sort of blackballing occurs is quite difficult because what we can see are annulled elections through the record or the appointment of a council. But these can actually mean radically different things. Annulled elections can mean that El Pueblo won, they vetoed, but they can also mean that there was a popular victory and it was overturned. Annulled elections, which lead to municipal councils, can be indicators of compromise, but they can often be petty military dictatorships, which are installed to override local representation of people like Agravistas. And you see this really clearly in Puebla, conservative state, lots of impoverished municipios. In the 40s, military officers are sent out to head councils in absolutely every major town outside the main city. And so what you have in looking at the record is equifinality. You have superficially identical results that cover very different processes and outcomes. What is clear, though, is that while state and national elites aspire to proper paid up electoral control, they find it too expensive to establish universally. And even um, really archetypal strongmen like um, Gonzalo Enes Santos in San Luis Potosí um, couldn't pull off complete electoral domination. He had to negotiate compromises. In 1945, his candidate for local deputy in Huasteca, which is actually his Patria Chica, is driven out by hell of bullets and vetoed. And moreover, when Santos is successfully rigging elections, it's so violent and so opposed that it's unsustainable. And so in 1952, he arrests a pan candidate and there's a civic insurgency. In 1959, a right-wing Catholic is actually elected mayor of the state capital. And so there's a widespread efficacy to local mobilization, whether it's to install the genuinely popular or to veto the genuinely unpopular, which you see in an opposition focus and belief in local elections. And that belief eventually pays off beyond the village level. And the end of century democratic transition begins in towns and villages. And between 79 and 87, the opposition win more than half of Mexico's most important municipios. This is the beginning and inspiration for later victories higher up, senatorial and gubernatorial levels. Elsewhere, the PRI was always a figure covering autonomous parties like the Charistas, or partisans of a popular indigenous cacique, Eliodoro Charis, who dominated Cuchitán in Oaxaca from the 40s through the 60s, or the popular representative Siranzina Cantán in Chiapas until the 70s. Across the Mixteca Baja, another conservative indigenous Catholic area, you get panistas who do very well in elections, and so they dominate these sort of compromised councils. Or in other cases, there is a sort of priest town council who everyone ignores, and every important decision is made by a sort of shadow um, pan council. And these concessions are underpinned by a threat, a threat of collective bargaining by riot, a sort of large scale widespread riots that broke out 
across Zacatecas in 58, or Chihuahua, Baja California in 59. And it worked, you can see that. Why? Because it is ubiquitous across the period. So in 1982, I took a sample of 35 um, of 50 municipal election results, and 35 of them involved storming the town hall, these pitchfork moments. It's completely standardized political behavior. And so the idea that until you get to a democratic transition, there are no real contests in towns and villages is just wrong. In fact, President Adolfo Ruiz Cortines, back in the 50s, put it um, far more accurately. He had an underrated knack for the one-liner. He said, this is how it works. Federal deputies, senators, and governors are determined by the president. Local legislators are determined by the governor. Municipal governments are determined by the pueblo. And so elections, to sum up, are both free and unfree. They're close to uniformly unfair, but at the same time, they're competitive, and at times they're representative. So Mexico is a single party state where the single party loses elections. Now, in order for that to happen, there had to be an appreciable amount of civil liberties to start with, and so there were. And these included the right to free speech, the right to assembly, and the right to access the courts. And at the higher level, though it stands like a certain sort of Mexican nostalgia, Mexico was in many ways quite an open society. Yeah. Under the PRI, there was no equivalent to AMLO's recent attempt to arrest 31 academics. You may, if you're a graduate student, think I wish they'd do that to my professors, and I really sympathize, but it's still, this is not very prehistoric. Oh, the mayor of Mexico City, who called for the National University to conduct, I quote, un ejercicio de reflexión, after which the UNAM did actually form a tribunal and admit to corruption and mafias. Uh, this is a language and an outcome that are positively Maoist. At the national level under the PRI, quite a lot of free speech was in fact protected. So Carlos Fuentes, for example, was able to publish a furious condemnation of extrajudicial killing during the counterinsurgency in Morelos that linked junior officers directly to the president. When the government fired the head of one of the two most respected publishing houses, the Fondo de Cultura Económica, that head went straight on with his camarilla to found an independent house, Siglo XXI, which escaped suppression, and I would guess probably has sold a lot more books since the Fondo since then. Now, the centerpiece of government oppression of free speech in the myth of democratization and pre-oppression was the, the takeover of the broadsheet Excelsior in 1976, after its editorial staff became overly aggressive. And yet, None of Julio Scherer's Camarilla, who depicted themselves as martyrs for free press, actually went to jail or were murdered, unlike their counterparts in the Southern Code. The main press control used by the elite lay in their monopoly of newsprint through the state agency BIPSA, which they used to deny paper to serial critics. This is classic compared to authoritarianism in 1990s Tanzania. Um, the government did much the same thing but with a further level of sophistication. When a newspaper was sailing too close to the wind, they would cut off the usual newsprint and send out this really low quality pink newsprint. And once you got that as an editor, you knew that you had to vary your line. You would have thought there was perverse incentive to actually buy sort of rough print pink newspapers, but, but it seemed to work. And in Mexico, it did too. 
Um, at the same time, though, national politicians aren't really constrained by the mechanics of print. And so they can be in person volubly, aggressively critical. They can also be volubly and aggressively critical in interviews printed abroad. And so when the founder of the PAN, Manuel Gomez Morin, sat down with an American academic, his denunciations of the PRI were utterly vituperative. And if Force Major hadn't kept me from my office, I'd quote them to you because they're brilliant. Now, provincial journalists were another question. They too were quite often voluble critics, although voluble critics open to bribes. And they were quite often threatened, beaten, or killed. But before we get too misty-eyed, it's worth pointing out that the media that really count are first radio and later television, and both of them are monopolies run by state proxies. So the great mogul Emilio Azcárraga, who owned Mexico's only TV company until the 90s, Televisa, put it quite clearly. He told the president, I am a soldier of the PRI. As the civil right to assembly, that depended very much on where, when, and why people were trying to assemble. Demonstrators had legally to solicit government permission to meet and march. They often did, sometimes they got it, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they didn't get permits and they marched anyway. And this is where you get this really marked urban rural and even more accurately Mexico City provincial division in both the prevalence and the visibility of oppression. So village gatherings can be broken up by pistoleros or soldiers who are garrisoned in small detachments across Mexico in part for precisely this reason, to break up political gatherings. But in the towns and cities, soldiers are far less seen. And when they were, it was often to try and keep the electoral peace rather than to beat up distance. Finally, as for access to courts, people of all stripes had it if they got there. And in the Amparo, a sort of habeas corpus against state violence, they had a powerful, if not wholly reliable mechanism for legal self-defense. But in the spirit and letter of classic competitive authoritarianism, though, the Amparo could be trumped by the Ley de Disolución Social, which is a wartime law that allowed detention on very nebulous grounds of raison d'etat. An extremist in Priista, Mexico, all civil liberties were trumped by invoking raison d'etat, or more to the point, a raison of priests clinging on to their jobs behind the civilities of competition. Civil liberties could be annulled by murder in the case of journalists. Soldiers in case of the right to assemble, political imprisonment or even disappearance in case of freedom of speech. Yet again, the difference between conditions in the city and the provinces were marked. Moreover, though, it's very revealing that the most significant and visible abuses of power were loudly criticized, not just in letters to Gobernación, of which there are tens of thousands, but really across society audibly. There's only one visible political murder of a national journalist, Manuel Buendía, and it's an outrage precisely because that's outside of a um, in the national media is out of bounds. The military killings of the 1952 opposition marches in the Alameda or the 1968 students at Tlatelolco were totemic for generations for the same reasons. Students in general actually weren't subject to oppression at all. They had colonial style fueros and their, their demos and their occasional thuggery were okayed by an indulgent government whose members had after all done much the same thing, like hijacking buses to get to football games. Visible mass political violence in the provinces 
led reliably to the governors in turn losing their jobs. And in fact, the most visible of all in the system's formative years, a massacre of peaceful Christian Democrats who were protesting a rigged election in Nuevo León, led to the wholesale reinvention of the state party. This is why there is a PRI. That's the trigger that founds it. And the public nullification of civil liberties on a massive scale is in short exceptional. It's a breach of the Reyes Nascritas that's quite often politically fatal. So from an elite point of view, far safer and more systematic is the third main characteristic of competitive authoritarian regime, which is tilting the playing field, or as Jorge Castaneda put it in 94, hosting, I quote, a soccer match where the goalposts were different heights and breadths, and where one team included 11 players plus the ref, and the other a mere six or seven players. So it looked a bit like Liverpool Man United last weekend. And there are all sorts of ways of doing this, many of them just straightforward bureaucratic banality. One strategy is to collect taxes from dissidents when few others pay them. As one governor put it, Mexicans, this one goes for UNEST, or Mexicans thought, quote, tax is an unjustifiable punishment, and to evade it by all means possible it is legitimate and even admirable. Another key area was the law. In the states, local worthies could just deny outright opposition parties access to notaries. They needed notarization of their members to actually exist and get on the ballot. And provincial notaries were, in general, staunch priestas. One of the staunchest priestas I ever met was a, a guerrerense who smoked cohibas and had leather-bound um, volumes of jurisprudence on the um, shelves behind him next to the memoirs of Linda Lovelace and um, asked me uh, when was Friedrich Katz going to finish up his book on, on Pancho Villa anyway. But the majority of transactions went the other way. They went towards illicit legal aid. So there are carpetazos when compromising documents disappear and there are the cooking of municipal books and there are really improbably favorable um, judgments in, in um, state court cases. So you can buy amparos. You can buy acquittals. And it's really the epitome of higher up tolerance of discretional corruption, not just in terms of the legal exemptions for sale, but also in minimal sanctions for the venture of court. So when investigating magistrates were accused of taking bribes, they were usually transferred rather than fired. And this applies to other bureaucrats, like, for example, immigration. Um, agents in Pablo Yankelevich's excellent recent book, Los Otros. It doesn't matter what you do as a migration act, um, agent, the worst that can happen is you're sent elsewhere. And this is the main means, the most important ones of tilting the playing field is corruption, which is protean, protean sorry, and polyvalent. And at times it's delegitimizing. You see it in this sort of fascinated revulsion against um, quite mythical figures in the Aleman government, his amigotes. So there's the finance minister who has a mansion and, quote, a bejeweled American wife. There's Jorge Pascal from Veracruz, who has estates in Kenya and launches 4,000 pound shopping sprees in Harrods. At other times, though, corruption doesn't undermine. It's actually a critical source of stability, above all in civilian military relations. Corruption could buy off the powerful, it could form deep alliances, and it could also be weaponized against political enemies, whether the accusations were actually true or not. 
and it could also alienate those out of power. So one of the most important questions in explaining how the pre's competitive authoritarianism worked is the balance between the stabilizing and destabilizing impact of corruption. Now, there are three main types, and you can get really um, sort of um, pruriently um, obsessed with corruption, so I'll try not to. But I think it's important to see its complexity and the extent to which it reaches. So of these three types, the first is just straightforward bribes, discretional one-offs. The second is structural corruption. It's more important. It's regular systematized payoffs to strategically placed actors, rents and off-book salaries effectively. So generals get cash payments monthly. Federal deputies get cash payments. Journalists, there's at least six slang terms for what the brown envelopes containing cash for them um, actually contains. And the governors who corrupt journalists are themselves then corrupt by drug trading organizations. Union leaders get paid by the private sector in return for union peace. Policemen charge monthly tariffs to trucking companies. And in some cases, a town's entire public administration can be on the black market payroll. So Jaime Merino, who's the cacique of the oil fields at Poza Rica, is paying off the entire town, down to even the baseball team and its ref. And finally, the third and most influential form of corruption is graft. As Mexico was a gatekeeper state, it was fiscally weak, it was cash poor, it was bureaucratically feeble, and yet it was imbued with a certain power through its ability to regulate access to natural and human resources. It can overcome or create bottlenecks. And that scope and power grows from the 40s onwards as the government's control of the economy through ISI grows. And those who are going to be corrupted can be allowed through or they can just be given their own gates to exploit. So as one senior politician put it quite poignantly, no me den, pero ponme donde hay. And some of the most successful grafters actually get quite literal gates in the form of custom agencies. But you can really see it across an extremely broad range of activities. And there's always a 20% surge, give or take, in government spending in the last few months of a presidential period. The outgoing are cashing in before they leave office. And one of the reasons this is so doable is because there are so many permits in the Mexican economy. This is part of the gatekeeper state. Now, at the same time, there's this sort of puritanical paternalism, which means that an awful lot of pretty everyday um, activities are illegal, like gambling, prostitution, gun ownership, and new bars. And prohibition, as always, makes vice more lucrative. So if you're a prostitute in Chihuahua, you pay more than a doctor or a lawyer. And while those taxes aren't actually in the state's fiscal law, and one observer puts, quote, spare blushes, they are actually charged at the municipal level pretty universally. What does this have to do with politics? Well, the impact of all of this was once sort of counterintuitively hypothesized in modernization theory as stabilizing, boosting the efficiency of government in countries with weak states and embryonic civic cultures. So political stability and economic development, according to people like Samuel Huntington, are supposed to come out of corruption. Um, we now believe quite the opposite, that corruption is this sort of top-down 
not bottom-up phenomenon, it's economically inefficient, and it's politically destabilizing. Now, in the case of Mexico, it quite clearly is economic and um, inefficient. Um, it costs three times too much to build a road, for example. But the political conclusion that is kind of a standard issue in our present is unsustainable because corruption in mid-century Mexico demonstrably does have stabilizing effects. And the toppling of corrupt politicians, that is once the crisis has gone political capital, those who push them out. The priests are great managers of hope. And so when somebody is revealed as extraordinarily corrupt, the person who gets rid of them and reveals it has reinvented good government and the revolution. And then there's two sort of less cautious stabilizing effects. First of all, it prevents elite exits that threaten these really broad governing coalitions. And so the starkest example comes when there's a near coup in 1948, and there's both an institutional payoff to the army when they don't, um, which are a vastly increased budget. And then there's the uninstitutional payoff of lucrative sinecures for the main generals in a command system which is specifically restructured to provide those opportunities for corruption. But the flip side of the consent this buys, the force which is the other pillar of the dicta blanda, is in the power that records of that corruption afford the civilian leadership. Because for top level graft, embezzlement and extortion can always be weaponized against the corrupt and used to end their careers. So in the short term, corruption buys off threatening distance. In the long term, it gives corruptors a threat to keep those acts distance in line. And it's the balance of the two phenomena which are really central to the bigger balancing act of the new state leaders. And they're critical in allowing what Larry Diamond called elections without democracy. So in sum, the modern Mexican political system for many years made a lot of sense to a large number of people. And many people shared the sort of mixed um, feelings of no one less than Octavio Paz's divorce lawyer, who once told a friend, I quote, I vote for the PAN and cross my fingers that the PRI wins. This is a pithy endorsement of a successful competitive authoritarianism. And Mexico from the 40s to 90s had all the characteristics of a competitive authoritarian regime and some heritage into the bargain. So I said for Daniel Cosio Villegas, a great historian of Mexico, the pre-revolutionary civilian regime of General Porfirio Diaz was also dictablanda. And there were some points. There were regular elections during the Porfiriato, and at the municipal level, some were actually competitive. And even at a national level, Diaz had to do a bit of legwork to preserve electoral decorum, such as forming fly-by-night political parties. There was a pesky press, which ranged from El Diario del Hogar, the spectacularly misnamed opposition broadsheet, to the occasional local rag, Francisco Madero actually sponsored two of them in Coahuila. And there was, in the comment which will outrage revolutionary nationalists, in terms of really fully paid up dictatorships, there was not that much massive violence, as long as you were into resident of Pomochic, where an entire mountain village was wiped off the map. But Pomochic actually stood out for its bloodiness. It's a bit like, um, it's a Porfirian Tlatelolco, we could say. And it's also not hushed up. It's reported in the guise of a homo 
It's a lot less violence than the Guerra Sucia of the 1960s. And rather than running a military dictatorship, Diaz actually sent the army to barracks, slashed its numbered and neutered its generals. As for economics, for many people, the inequalities of desarrollo hacia adentro weren't all that much less than those of desarrollo hacia afuera. But the political comparison between the Porfiriato and the PRI breaks down irrevocably over the key question of re-election and the attendant circulation of elites. And Porfirio Diaz, who had used the Union Liberal Party to keep a big coalition together, making it more of a real party, uh, Diaz, who repeated his trick of putting a puppet like Manuel Gonzalez into office and instead once and again, this is what Putin did with Medvedev many years ago now, that would have been a very different Diaz. But as it was, the general clung limpet-like in our night's comparison um, with himself to a very personalist 30 years of power. And the violence of the ensuing armed revolution really worked as an inoculation to one-man dictatorship and to military rule in general. And so they make the years of the PRI a lot more than a Porfiriato plus, or perhaps more accurately, a Porfiriato minus. So, well, Mexico no idols can be used ironically, and some fans of the national football team wonder how you can take 11 highly gifted individuals and turn out not a winning, but a losing machine. And again, fans of current Man United may well sympathize. It can be used touristically to extol the lure of a Pueblo Mágico or a beach, or while looking at the charming lake of Tequetengo in Morelos. And wakeboarding over a drowned village of recalcitrant peasants is, in fairness, really quite unusual. It can be used to describe the sheer antiquity of the ideology of mestizaje, which predates that of the Aprin Peru by decades. And it can, the point of this talk, quite definitely be used to describe the long 71 years of the single party state. Mexico was exceptional in its political fundamentals. The most evident exception was the avoidance of military dictatorship. Only Costa Rica took that deviant path in Latin America. The reason, a cross-class suspicion of political generals, a legacy of the revolution, and its operationalization by this informal Senate of military ex-presidents. The influence of Lazaro Carnes as a revolutionary force in office has long been revised downwards. He's not very revolutionary, according to the revisionists of the 60s, and he's not much of a force either, according to the post-revisionists of the 90s and noughts. The revolutionary force out of office should be revised upwards. Not a jefe maximo, but definitely a jefe minimo. Carnes was the most influential and lasting member of the informal Senate. He exercised a veto on a harder line or personalist dictatorship at least twice during his presidential career. The military paradoxically kept the military out of power. And through an arrangement much like that between the government and Mexico's other social groups, collected, collective bargaining, targeted distribution of wealth or its removal, and abounded laissez-faire. In this new order that came out of the revolution's end, intelligent design by elites shouldn't be overrated, and the strange compacts of modern Mexican politics were more the products of evolution, sort of selective pressures of force and consent exerted by rulers and ruled. And neither should the stability and policy autonomy of the PRI be overrated. The exercise of power remained a juggling act of fragile objects, and neither a self-respecting down-the-line authoritarian nor an imperial president 
would define politics as Ruiz Cortines with another good one-liner did calling it, quote, the art of toadying. But the complex and malleable relations between Mexicans and their unrevolutionary governors allowed this one-party state to last rather a long time, longer than any other governing arrangement in Mexican history. And political terms, the mechanics of this sound very much like later competitive authoritarian regimes. But one key difference is precisely that, precocity. Mexico was the first of this kind. Lazaro Cárdenas, who laid a good bit of the turf of the PRI, was president before World War II, never mind the Cold War. Why Mexico and why then are good questions. And there's a geopolitical exogenous reason. Competitive authoritarianism, its possibility, presupposes a messiness in international relations and the consequence independence of action. These are characteristics of the 90s, the post-Cold War world. But Mexico is rare in enjoying some of that independence during the political dichotomies of the Cold War. Um, the only really immediate comparative I can think of is Yugoslavia. And it's not because it has any particular policy autonomy vis-a-vis -vis the United States. It doesn't. But it does have an unusual freedom from foreign meddling. And then in addition to the geopolitical reason, there's the domestic reason. And this is the inoculating effect of the revolution. And Mexico is the only major revolution which is triggered by a rigged election. And it's the only major revolution where mass mobilization and sweeping social change follow Milkatos slogan like suffragio efectivo. The French, the Russians, the Chinese, they didn't overthrow their unbeloved precursors because they'd stuffed the ballot box. And out of this idiosyncrasy grew the second key difference with the authoritarian regimes of the Cold War world. And this is that the PRI was mechanically institutional and ideologically committed to regular elections and punctilious transfers of power from president to president. So far, the one-man hybrid regimes of Putin and Erdogan have survived without that stroke of institutional intelligence. But they have decades to go, never mind peaceably installing well-meaning successors, before they can claim that with enough talent, repressive force and natural resources, their personalism doesn't matter. And so until then, Mexico will remain by some distance, not just the first, but also the most successful hybrid regime. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paul. That was a fascinating talk. There's a huge amount in there. Um, if people have questions, uh, I'm going to make some very brief comments because we've got um, about uh, half an hour if people want to ask questions. So if you could either put your hand up in the uh, using the hand up emoji uh, option or type your question in the chat. Um, before I get on to that, first of all, just quickly, um, I'll, of course, forgive your rampant anti-Man United bias, your, your well-deserved smiles this week, um, and also to apologise for the quality of the automatic closed captioning. Uh, we do have it on for accessibility reasons, but it does struggle with, um, you, with when you quote in more than one language. So we had such gems today as the Burrito Revolutionario Institucional, the President Portfolio Versus, and um, bafflingly the Morrissey Panelists, which I think was Municipal President. So hopefully people got the... Uh, I love it. Those. 
<laughs> I didn't see that, but if you could send me a selection, that is fantastic. I have a horrible suspicion it's going to be attached to the YouTube version of this, but we'll see. Um, anyway, so I think what, what came through there was the, the essential rationality of the pre in a lot of these cases, or if not in the specific actions, but in the general construction uh, of the model. And that makes me immediately turn around and think was it the political opposition's collaboration or guilelessness or supine nature that lent the regime both its legitimacy and its longevity and i'm not only saying that because i've done most of my work on the the sort of quixotic uh, oppositions at various points um so something about how oppositions fit into this would be would would be good to bring in a little bit about their agency maybe Another thing on the unpredictability of some of these elections, the one that jumps out uh, again as a kind of totemic, uh, quixotic left effort is Valentin Camper in 1976, um, which was one of those that you mentioned with, with the laughably high um, results. I mean, in fact, there was no official opposition candidate, I think, in 1976. No, um, but nevertheless, Lopez Portillo only got 93%. Yeah. And so Camper getting, you know, anything between a million and three million write-in votes seems to me quite an, an unpredictable moment, even if it's ultimately of no use with the, with the electoral system as it was. Um, and that, that circled me back to a different point about predictability, which was the 1946 election, where you have this, uh, what I thought always find very funny reaction of the PCM to the 1946 election, which is, uh, outrage in the in the communist newspapers about the results of the 1946 election saying that these are undemocratic this is very unfair we were told we were going to get nine deputies and one or two senators um, without any sense of why that might itself be undemocratic too so again coming back to this point about the agency of opposition how how they conceptualize themselves within this system i've you mentioned lintz and i've written a little bit about like, these ideas of semi-opposition and pseudo-opposition and how they fit in here. So it'd be great to hear something about that. And then I'll open up to um, Q&A from the audience. So as I say, pop your questions in the chat or raise your hands while Paul is um, re responding to that. Thank you. Right, well, let's start, start with those two specifics of Valentin um, Valentin Campos' um, 1976 campaign and the 1946 crash in disappointment for PCM. So I completely agree. I think Mokampa's um, result was extraordinary and actually um, um, a difficult to convey delegitimization. It was sort of within baseball delegitimization. Um, this really was not a system set up for write-in votes. And yet, as you point out, you got them. And these are the ones we know about. And so, yes, emblematic of the low point of the competitive authoritarian system and the high point of the straightforward authoritarian one. That's one. Two, Alemán's election. I actually think that we can, we can rob our own terminology and call that a democratic spring. Um, I believe that it was a clean election. There was all sorts of shenanigans leading up to um, Alemán's selection as candidate. But thereafter, it was so clear that he was going to win hands down. And it looked so good in that brief 
Latin America wide um, pressure for democracy that I think that was probably along with 1911 and 2000, the sort of three high points of electoral probity of Mexico's 20th century. And so the PCM, who I, I don't want to be rude about them given your speciality, but I mean, really they are a shower. At this point, they are such a shower. And the fact that they sign up to uh, massive electoral corruption and then publicly denounce the fact that it doesn't come through, I think is in part a reflection that Alemán's campaign saw they just didn't need to do that. They were genuinely, overwhelmingly popular. So those are specifics. Now, more systematically um, opposition. Um, from the left, you have, first of all, problems of leadership in that Lombardo Toledano is not quixotic. He is the ultimate cynical operator who deflates over and over again what could be a broader organized left. You also have the problem that the pre-managing hope managed to keep a lot of the left, whether it be unionists, radicals, or intellectuals of the new left later on, on board in this very broad coalition. And so the sort of cadres which a serious left could have, an awful lot of them are actually inside the brief. You then have the classic force side in which really serious um, left-wing revolutionary opposition is just killed. But co-option is the main, um, and inclusion are, I think, the main strategies for dealing with the left. Now, the right is a very good question. And the reasons for the ban's long-term, decades-long weakness are, first of all, it's trying to build a castle on sand. And the PRI has the legacy of these literally thousands of parties. The ban has nothing. The ban's only sort of um, link to um, a political past is this very brief window of Catholic politics of um, the Madero, not even years, the Madero sort of 19 months. As they don't have the foundations, the people who could be cadres, a lot of them have actually left Mexico as refugees to the US after the Cristiada. And there's the long-term anti-clericalism of much of Mexico. And so the PAN have a mountain to climb. And I think the question shouldn't be why are they so feeble for so long? But why did they actually manage to overcome that and gain such strength? And there you can talk about the profound Catholicism of particularly um, rural and indigenous Mexico. You can talk about the sort of cryptopanistas, the pan actually have power in terms of its members in an awful lot of places which have little red, white, and green randles. They're a lot more influential than they look at this subnational level. And I think the pan also um, get an awfully long way given that they're not talking about the revolution. We're, we're imbued with this idea that if you don't talk about the revolution, you'll never make it in Mexican politics. Um, well, first of all, I think that's sort of a hegemonist dream. It's not true. Um, once you get past, um, much past the, the 30s, really, sure, they're talking about revolution, but people are also talking about democracy, 
and development and even feminism. So revolutionary discourse is not all embracing at all. And the pan talking about development, about government prob probity, and then laterally, well, no, actually all along about democracy, this all resonates. So I see the pan as being quite successful given the extremely narrow bounds of the possible within, within which they operated. Yeah, I think that's entirely fair. And you don't need to worry about being rude about the uh, PCM in the mid-1940s on my part, because that was pretty much the thrust of my doctoral thesis. Um, I mean, it, it particularly because, and I think you're absolutely right about characterising Alaman as having you know, enough of a coalition behind him for there to be no doubt at that point, because the 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 Communist Party had declared him to be proletarian number one uh, prior to the... Uh, and at the same time, the synarchists say that he's a neo-synarchista. I mean, so the man really is on a roll. I mean, yeah. this is this is pre-excelsis. Everyone subscribes to um, your your um, your qualities. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and then and then also for that point on the the use of revolutionary discourse, that's a double-edged sword for the left as well because they're not, you know, they can't talk about a different revolution, i.e., a socialist or communist revolution, um, at the same time uh, because the Mexican Revolution is already there and has taken form. Um, there's a question in the chat from um, Luis Orlando, uh, which is, what is the role of the US government during this period that you're analysing? In other words, is the stability of the competitive dictatorship due to domestic reasons alone? That's a really good question. And actually, Eric Zolov's um, just published a book called The Last Good Neighbour, um, in which he argues that um, Mexico actually really did quite well in accepting its um, autonomy vis-a-vis um, -vis the US in the Cold War. Um, I actually don't buy that at all. I think that um, Mexico is really quite successful in punching above its weight in the 30s, I mean, particularly sort of intellectually um, in the sort of ideas of international relations. I mean, then has this brief period of success in the 40s without a man but then subsequently, and the real high point is there's actually a third commission at Bretton Woods, which everyone forgets. And that one is a sort of social development one. And it's chaired by a Mexican, Victor Urquidez, very young, very smart economist, who actually manages to out-argue John Maynard Keynes and say, you should write economic development into the UN Charter. And he succeeds. And he also succeeds in getting um, not veto power um, on the IMF, but something close to it because he gets two Mexican representatives onto it. The Bretton Woods arrangement is always going to be like the UN Security Council, it's a Western boys club. The Mexicans do more than anyone else to attenuate that. Does this mean that the US has um, limited um, salience in looking at how Mexico has this long-lasting competitive authoritarian regime. Um, again, I don't think so. Um, Eric Zolov thinks that it is a specifically sort of US support which gets, um, gets the pre through difficult years. Um, Aaron Navarro, a specialist on sort of the army and security, thinks that um, Mexico can be Sort of pseudo revolutionary because at the end of the day they're under the security umbrella of the US 
But who's going to attack Mexico anyway? You know, the Russians are not coming into Veracruz anytime too soon. And what actual support does the US, the US lens, is kind of negative support in the absence of aggressive intervention that it carries out across the rest of Latin America. The US does not contribute anything to Mexico in terms of um, USAID. It's shocking. I mean, they, they send across about $20 million. It's lower than anywhere near a comparative in Latin America. So they don't fund them directly. They end the Bracero Agreement, key economic support as the Cold War hots up in the early 1960s. They continually try and warp um, Mexican um, economic policy towards a sort of more, um, more favorable terms for their agro-capitalists. And so there are, for example, loans for social housing, and the US says at various points, Anson Clayton, the um, agricultural multinational, isn't getting a good enough deal in the Bajio. So just, you know, slow down the, pro the um, processing of those loans, and you'll manage to annoy enough people in Yucatan to actually get a change. But does this add up to sort of propping up the pre? It doesn't add up either way, really. They're certainly not subverting it, but neither are they forming a real bollock for it. So once again, you come back to the sort of Mexicanist party line, which is Mexico sometimes matters in foreign affairs, but foreign affairs matters surprisingly little for Mexico. Yeah, that, that, and I think the you know there's a whole series of arguments in the very recent literature on on that that show the the kind of vicissitudes of of, of, of when it matters. But I think the central point about lack of direct intervention is really important. Um, and Luis Serrano's, uh, it's, it's a really it's a really fair trade off. If you look at Christy Thornton's work, you see that the days of radical Mexican foreign policy are actually before World War Two. And after World War II, there's this sort of cozy live and let live. And America actually wants Mexico to look like um, an independent but revolutionary ally. And this works to US advantage. And the cost it comes with, though, is a certain neutering of Mexican foreign policy. So the US doesn't influence so much domestic policy as it does foreign policy. How? Well, the example, perhaps the most important, is Mexico and never joins the bloc of non-like nations, despite the fact that along with Brazil, it's seen as a very desirable way of flexing muscles and showing relevance. The US vetoes that. And where there might be compensation, so for example, you know, throw the bone of a non-permanent membership of the Security Council, not difficult to do. Mexico doesn't get a seat for 30 years after creation. And so the US really doesn't influence internal politics, but it really doesn't give Mexico as a supposed ally much of a leg up at all in international affairs after the war. And as I say, I think that's where the greatest influence is. Yeah, and I think that's where your earlier comparison with Yugoslavia is really good uh, uh, too, and that, that you have these, these kind of, um, sui generis 
Cold War players, effectively. Um, and I think to a much lesser extent, you could maybe put France and Turkey in there in a different way, but, but, but certainly Yugoslavia and Mexico stand out in that regard. Um, Can I just quickly point out with an irritatingly irrelevant way that a Mexican um, music um, is huge in Yugoslav culture. Absolutely huge. Um, and um, in fact, one of Mexico's poorer films from the Epoca de Oro um, is a massive classic in Yugoslavia because it introduces Las Mañanitas. And people think Las Mañanitas is a great tune, it's beautiful. The translation is um, has nothing whatsoever to do with that, but the impact is extraordinary. Excuse that. No, no, that's a, a, a good point to raise. Um, I'll, I'll just pick up on Louis Serran's point in the in the chat too. You've, you've partly addressed this um, in in the meantime, but there, there may be some specifics here, especially on anti-communism that you might want to talk about. Uh, Louis said, "Thank you for this fascinating talk. I was a bit late to the meeting, and I don't want to don't know if you touched on this. What is your assessment of the role and legacy of conservative opposition groups in the political system? As I say, you've mentioned that a bit." Um, but for example, uh, Partido Católico, PAN, Sinaquistas, and the myriad of nationalist and anti-communist little parties and organizations, or even the uh, Unión Nacional de Padres de Familia, especially after 1946. Good and extremely broad question. To try and narrow it down, I think anti-communist parties are of next to zero salience outside of um, places like, say, Guadalajara. They are showy to historians. I'm not convinced they actually do much. I think the um, Sociedad de Padres de Familia, on the other hand, is an extremely powerful social organization which changes policy both locally and nationally. It's exceptionally effective conduit for Catholic social policy or conservative social policy. Going back to the Sinarquistas, I think that for all their enthusiasm for Aleman, the question of where the Sinarquistas actually go reveals that their particular brand of fairly hard right, um, there's an argument, Jean Mayer, is it a Mexican fascism or not? Well, uh, no, it does have some fascist characteristics though, that wasn't really going to fly in Mexico. And so part of Sinarquismo, the more moderate parts, gets diverted into the founders of the PAN. Part just goes into exile in the US and stays there. Part actually, and there's a really good book by Alberto Garcia coming out on this, and quite a lot of Sinarquistas actually end up traveling as braceros and they get these sort of limited goods of the bracero permits to cut them out of the body politic. And so I think that outside of the PAN, it's not political parties, it's social organizations and still the priesthood who really count, uh, count in terms of day-to-day -day lives of Mexican people under competitive authoritarianism. Thank you, Paul. Um, any further questions, either, either raise your hand, um, or turn on your mic and butt in from among the audience um, or 
put something in the chat. We've probably got time for another one or maybe two if they're quick. Right, well, in that case, I'd quite like to ask Luis one, which is um, what what do you actually think, um, because this is your field, you actually know much more about it, of the importance of these sort of small hard-right parties. What's your take on it? Luis, you all right to come in there? Sorry, that's Luis Serran. We have several Luises in the, in the audience. <laughs> Luis might not be able to come back to us, of course. Um, right, no problem at all. It was just um, well, Nest Nest which I'll follow up with Luis um, on, okay. uh, on a different occasion. Oh, sorry, Luis. Martin Cameron. Um, okay, in that case, let's hear from Nestor. Uh, thank you very much, Paul, for, the, for, for this fantastic talk. I, I just have a question. I, I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit more uh, on your point about taxation and, and, and the role of taxation in this kind of political concert that you have described in your talk. Well, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, taxation is um, a major weakness um, across Latin America, specifically in Mexico, where, um, as, as I said, it's seen generally as being um, something of a, an insult. And it, it it leads to the problem of what can a state live off if not taxation? And the answer is, well, first of all, it can't. And this is in part why you have this feebleness of the pre, this sort of slightly paper dragon um, aspect to it. Um, if you look at what being a bureaucrat in the 40s, 50s or 60s means outside Mexico City, it's, it's quite extraordinarily impoverished. Um, there's, there's descriptions in, in Pablo Yanklovich's book, he's got a good eye for the anecdote about the sort of conditions migration agents have. Uh, and they're sort of living on patios surrounded by laundry. At that point, the idea that one supplements one's salary by um, ripping off um, anybody you can for crossing the border makes a lot of sense. Um, you also have, though, even at the very center, the lists of um, agents and, and office furniture for the intelligence agencies on whose work um, we historians have relied hugely in the last couple of decades. But it's, it's absolutely startlingly impoverished. So outside of a couple of places like Relaciones Exteriores, like Hacienda, like the presidency, Mexico state is very, very weak and underfunded. That's one consequence of tax. Another one, as I said briefly, is that it makes tax into a political weapon. You tax places and people who get out of line. And then third and finally, I think that taxation actually, low taxation earns the pre-legitimacy precisely because while they may not, um, while there may not be opportunity quite often in this incredibly 
unequal economy which they oversee, neither is it all that burdensome. And I think those are the three things which make tax um, so important um, in this period. Thank you very much, Paul. The enduring relevance of uh, Traven's Gobierno and, uh, and what you do to make ends meet comes to mind there. Oh, Luis, um, you've got your hand up uh, now. Is that all right? Do you want to come in now? Yes, and thank you. Sorry about that uh, technical glitch. Um, so, I mean, I, I was very interested in, in hearing what you had to say, and you did touch, Paul, in, on, on this, um, uh, let's say, this aspect of, of the, the role of the conservatives, the play of the conservative, the place of the conservatives in this, in this political system. No, my, my sense is that, or at least how I have approached it, is that uh, indeed there's a bunch, I mean, probably hundreds of uh, little uh, parties, organizations, um, all throughout Mexico, in fact, uh, that don't seem to have that uh, political clout or even uh, like a visible presence. But once you start, uh, I think, uh, treating them as part of let's say, I mean, what I would like to call kind of an, an like a broad anti-communist movement, right? When you shift from, let's say, conservatism to, to anti-communism more broadly, we start seeing a lot more um, uh, interaction and collaboration with the PRI, particularly the local levels. And, um, and we start seeing those little groups that seem to matter only to historians actually matter a, a bit more to, um, to PRI politicians, in fact, to folks like um, uh, like Miguel Alemán himself. I mean, he was, uh, him and his political group, particularly into the 60s, were very much allied with um, uh, business groups, student groups, and other kind of darker figures uh, that were sort of sharing this idea of, we are all part of this anti-communist crusade, right? So. So it's kind of, you know, kind of, to me, um, kind of rescuing a little bit of the, of the smaller, seemingly marginal actors and seeing how they actually interact with that huge political center, right? That huge political um, hegemon, if we want to still use that word, that is the, the PRI. No? So that's just what I wanted to say about that. Those are the ones that I think we, we, know, we know least about. I mean, you, you know exactly where you say the employers, the investors um, are as part of this um, sort of right-wing um, Aleman, post-Aleman group, um, but it's precisely um, these smaller organizations that are a bit like the Sinarquistas. You, you want to know really where they went, um, how, much, how much clout they had, um, and this is where outside of um, the, the sort of local I just don't know. And I'd like to know quite more about that. It's a very good question. And there's the possibility there of some transnational overlap, thinking about, say, um, Kirsten Weld's work on Guatemala and then later on Chile and on this, this idea of Latin America as an extended front in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and if we're thinking of the Sinaquistas not precisely as fascist, but maybe as having some echoes of... Francoism, um, and in, in particularly that combination of Catholicism and anti-communism. Um, how how does Mexico fit into that broader 
narrative or if it does uh, or if it's if it's too too generous to, to Very think of question and the student of mine actually just found an advert for synarchistas in a ku klux klan newsletter and so obviously we have really a lot to learn about these um dark parts of um the the right in mexico uh, why the clan would be plugging um a catholic organization was really shocking and i'm looking forward to um, finding out more right well i'm afraid we can't fight against time um even if we can fight against um received wisdom so i'm i'm going to draw things to a close there and say a big thank you to paul it's been a genuine pleasure um for me and i'm sure for everybody else in the virtual room to to hear you synthesize such a huge complex and varied picture um so clearly um and in a way that's i'm sure going to send us all away thinking uh, hard about what we do so um if, if people want to unmute themselves and thank paul in the traditional way that would be great well, if i could thank you first of all very much paul. this is really enjoyable thank you thank you thank you thank you Thank you very much. Um, and uh, we'll see you for our next talk. Uh, we have two series running concurrently um, in the general series on um, race and exclusion uh, and also on, um, on democracy and governance. So hopefully see you next time. Bye bye everybody and thank you for coming. Cheers Bill. Thanks, Thanks again. Very much Paul. Bye bye.